Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Oh, that, that was almost as weak as last week. Good morning, Covenant. Good morning. There you are. Got to stay awake, at least for the first part of it. If you are a guest with us, or if you're a guest joining us online, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Missed you guys last week. Well, kind of, sort of. Uh, Amy and I sat right over there for the 11 o'clock service, just enjoying just a little bit of a break after the, our time of Easter worship together. Pastor Chris Walsh, thank you for doing a phenomenal job of preaching God's Word. One thing you always will know here at Covenant, this is not a personality-driven ministry. The star of this show is the Word of God. And I am so grateful to have others who will come alongside of me, uh, and you can always expect faithful exposition and application of God's Word. And by God's grace, I'll hope to be uh, in the power of His Spirit equal to that task this morning as we're in Revelation chapter 19. We're picking back up on our series, Unveil Glory. We've been moving verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the revelation of John, initially given to seven churches in Asia Minor, but certainly applicable to you and I. And we've been talking about those that, that overall message that John has been giving to those churches. But today, John takes us right up to the beginning of the end, the consummation of all of history, that thing that the apostles called and later on uh, other theologians all the way through the last 2,000 years, what we have collectively referred to as the blessed hope. Today, we're going to get to see a graphic, powerful, one of the most awe-inspiring pictures you can find anywhere, but, a, but even anywhere in the Bible. We're going to look at this picture of the return of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the most comforting promises Jesus ever gave is that he would come back. And we don't read that first in Revelation. We actually read it first in John's gospel. We read in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'm going to tell you, I think we may be in our context, the time and the place in which we find ourselves now in 2022, we may be in a better position than we have been ever, certainly in my lifetime, to hear that good news. Because one of the things that we read about in Revelation, but we don't, haven't always experienced in our own context, are the kind of dark forces that we read about here. We've been told that those dark forces, those satanic forces come uh, and, and they begin to corrupt the world systems and, and that corruption surrounded these seven churches that he writes this letter to. And we've examined these words. We've discovered these early Christians were, were just the first to be called to live in that kind of environment. And, and we have experienced at least a little taste I think of, of something of what that looked like. I mean, there's been uh, seasons of trouble, even in our own nation and our own culture. I, I think it's fair to say we've experienced one of those seasons or maybe several seasons stacked on top of one another o over the last couple of years. Our world is filled with the kinds of things that have been revealed to us in Revelation. And, and in recent years, we, we've seen that coming in cycles. In fact, we've, we've seen it in a way that prior generations couldn't because you and I have all got one of these. 
right? And all we've got to do is turn it on, open it up, open it up, go to the news app, go to your social media app, and, and, and what have we seen? We've seen this constantly sort of pumping of bad news into our minds, convincing us that one day it's all going to break. Even starting a year ago when we thought, man, this is great, this pandemic's just starting to sputter, then came the variants, then came the supply chain issues, then came inflation. Of course, in the middle of all this, greenhouse gases are either going to drown us or cook us. One, one thing or another is going to happen. It just seems like waves and waves and waves of bad news. And that's where the hope can be most clearly seen. Today, we're reminded by John's vision that it's all going to end one day. It's all going to end. Heaven is going to be open. Now, the way you all say, can I just say this in love? Y'all know it's about to sting now, don't you? Can I? The way some of y'all carry on on social media with your drama, I'm not sure you're looking forward to the coming of Jesus because there ain't going to be no more drama. I love you. I love you. That's why I say things like that. Okay? Everything's, ah! Okay? There's always an enemy to fight. There's some preacher friends that I know. If they don't have an enemy to fight, they're not happy. They're like Oscar the Grouch from Sesame Street. You remember that guy's disposition? I don't like being happy. That makes me miserable. But I love making being miserable because it makes me happy. All right? That's not the disposition that is to be sought if you want to if you want to maintain the spirit that's being commended to you here, even in the midst of these nonstop waves, it's all going to end. And John, by the way, told us this from the very first of the letter. He says in chapter one, verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That event that was described way back in, just sort of hinted at all the way back in chapter one is now described for us in great detail in this fifth window that John opens for us. So it's been three weeks since we've been in Revelation, so let's, let's review. Revelation is a series of five windows being opened so that we can peer along with that first century church into what's going on on the other side of that veil. So let's review. Window one, beginning in chapter one, verse nine, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And that verse is the beginning of the initial revelation of Jesus in all of his glory to the churches, the initial revelation, okay? So, so in the midst of his churches, Jesus stands. Jesus has not lost his power. Jesus has his hand on the candlesticks, on the lamppost, and they will not be removed no matter what Caesar does until Jesus is ready to remove them. That's window one. Window two begins in chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And that ends up being a, a picture of the unfolding of history through the imagery of the seven seals. This is gonna, there's, gonna be, there's gonna be false teaching. There's gonna be warfare. There's gonna be famine. There's, there's gonna be death. There's gonna be cycles of these things throughout history. Then comes window three, beginning in chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. This is a vision of the seductive world powers that are going to pursue God's people. And when they refuse, those powers will turn violent against them. This is why the, the overarching narrative of Revelation is you better be careful with your political alliances because they will, no matter how right they may be on some issues, they're going to demand your absolute allegiance. And when you don't give it to them, they're going to marginalize you and they may even persecute you. 
That's the warning that we find in, in window three. Window four, beginning in chapter 15, verse five. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. So this is God's judgment on the world through these bowls of wrath. All right, and that carries us all the way up to today. Today, we're going to see window five. And it starts with verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Everything, brothers and sisters, I mean everything else that we've looked at in this text has been building up to this moment. John looks into heaven, and he sees a person. The same person that we saw at the beginning. Heaven is open, and we see Jesus in a way that the world has never seen him before. And we're told through that futuristic prediction, there's coming a day when you and I will see Jesus in a way that the world has never seen him before. And there are two challenges that rise out of this for the church in the first century, in our age, and in every age until Jesus comes. Lift your gaze is the first, stand in victory is the second. So let, let's take these in turn, beginning with lift your gaze. Because what comes first here is this detailed description of Jesus as the warrior king who returns. It starts with verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Now, the, the first time Jesus comes and presents himself in any kind of cultural influence, any kind of, of royalty, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you can read about that word prophesied, actually, in, in Zechariah chapter 9. And, and in fact, that matches uh, the, the customs of the ancient world. When a king rode into town on a donkey, he was riding in to declare a peace. But when he galloped in on a horse, he was coming to wage war. And so when we see this vision, not of one on a donkey, but one on a horse, we begin to see this move toward a final battle. But, but here's the irony. This battle will never be fought, and after this moment, no battle will ever be fought ever again, because this is Christ the King, and he is coming to button up history. He's coming to deal finally with the beast and the false prophet, this evil and corruption that has dominated every world system. It's about to come to an end. And this warrior is presented as the one who can do it. The same one who back in chapter 5, we are told, is the only one worthy to break the seals. Who's going to turn history loose so that it can finally get to its climax, so we can finally stop getting on and off this merry-go-round? There's only one person who can break those seals loose. And that same person, is the only one here who is capable of bringing history to its close. And multiple reasons for that are given in the coming verses. You see this, this graphic, beautiful, awe-inspiring view of the Lord Jesus. We read in verse 11, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. John 1.5 calls Jesus the faithful witness. He's faithful to his Father, and he's faithful to you and me from beginning to the end. Nobody's ever going to open Jesus' closet and find dirt. No skeletons. There's never going to be a news conference where there's some scandal involving Jesus or he's discredited in some way. Jesus can be trusted. And because of this, it is in righteousness that he judges and he makes war. In other words, every call he makes, including this one, all these calls at the end of the age, are completely in the right. Did you ever realize Jesus has never and will never have an opinion? 
You know, they say opinions are like noses, belly buttons, other body parts, right? Everybody's got one except for Jesus. See, in, in order to have an opinion, you, you have to hold out the plausibility that you might be wrong. Jesus doesn't have an opinion. Jesus has truth, always and forever. He is faithful and true, and because of that, it is only in pure and complete righteousness that he makes every decision. This is the faithful and true and righteous judge. And John goes on in verse 12 to say of his eyes, they are as a flame of fire. What does that mean? Will you ever notice how the eyes give somebody away? I love the history of songs and how they're written. Uh, I'm not a terribly, I, I get jealous sometimes of artists and how, how they can look at the most mundane thing, you know, like the worst Seinfeld episode, and then they'll have a, there'll be a song come out of it. I don't know how they do that. But, but one of my favorite bands is the Eagles. Yes, some of you responded well to that. Yeah, greatest rock band in all of human history. So they're, they're sitting at a bar one night, and there's this, there's this young lady who's sitting there with this older man, and they're observing him and her. And, and whether or not they assume rightly, who knows? Could have been completely, they could have completely misjudged the situation. But, but what they're looking at is, is the typical scene where you've got this young lady who in this song that was eventually written, she's in love with this man. She wants to be with this other man, but she doesn't feel like she can be because he's not a man of means and she likes the finer stuff. She likes the, the good clothing and the, and the nice car and the, and, and the big house. And so she clings to this older man and with her eyes and her smile and all these things, she acts attracted to him, but she's really not. She's really in love with this other guy. Kind of sounds like a rock song, doesn't it? All right. Well, they saw what they perceived that being that scenario happening to them or happening in front of them in a bar that night. And Glenn Fry, who was the leader of the band at that time, pointed at that young lady. He looked back at his bandmates and he said, hey, boys, look at them lying eyes. And that's where the song came from, right? Because we know sometimes it doesn't, you can smile, you can talk a good game, you may, but so often there's something about the eyes that gives us away, doesn't it? If you won't look at somebody, uh, if, if you're shifty, you keep looking back and forth. Jesus' eyes declare that there is no sin, no wrong, no harm, no vulnerability. They are bright and pure and penetrating and purifying. We've already seen one vision of his eyes that, that reminds us that there is nothing he does not see. Here we see an added ingredient. There is nothing that he does not see, and of everything he sees, there is nothing he does not perceive with absolute perfection. Jesus knows it all. He knows it all perfectly. And then verse 12 goes on to say, on his head are many diadems. Now the diadem, the crown, the jewel in the crown, symbol of victory in the ancient games. And we've seen this symbol before, but not quite to this level. In chapter 12, verse 3, the dragon has seven diadems on seven heads. Chapter 13, verse 1, the beast from the sea has 10 of these on 10 heads. But when we come to Jesus, we find that there are many there's not a number attached to them, possibly because they're uncountable, and they are not on seven heads or ten heads, but one. One. 
This is a picture of every sphere of sovereign rule, every domain of every society, every national border, every flag that has ever flown above any kind of soil, every bit of that authority all on a singular head, all of it under a single sovereign who is victorious over all of it. We can put our faith and trust in that moment and in the person that is going to bring that moment, brothers and sisters, because Jesus has never lost a battle. Never. John goes on. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. See, in the ancient world, your name revealed something of your character, something of your nature. And in Scripture, we have a lot of names for Jesus. We call him Emmanuel. We call him Lord. We call him Savior. We call him King of Kings. Even with that full range of vocabulary at his disposal, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. What's that mean? It means it cannot be expressed in human language. You and I have what we at Covenant believe to be a perfect book, an inerrant, infallible, authoritative book of Scripture, and yet even with the power therein, those Scriptures themselves have not yet drawn out all of who He is. And that's because you can't fit His glory into human description with human language. There's no final measurement to His substance. This is the one who's coming back. And verse 13 says his robe is dipped in blood. Now there's a bit of holy irony here because this symbol is, is illustrated. A ruler who's conquered his enemies, but there's no battle. So if you've conquered your enemies, but there's no battle, where, where's the blood come from? And really the, the only reasonable answer that I can come up with is this blood on his robe is his own. Because this is how Scripture portrays Jesus. He won victory for us over sin and evil and death. And he did it at the cost of his own life. This victory came. Remember Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those on the mountain who run and, and who say to Zion, your God reigns. There's a kingdom coming. There's a king who's going to reign over it. And then in the very next chapter, we're told how this kingdom is going to come. Not through political savvy, not through big weapons, not through mighty militaries, but through one who comes to suffer, one who comes to bleed, one who comes to be in agreement with his father, crushed on behalf of those who wander and need forgiveness. This is his blood, and it signifies the battle he won when he shed that blood on the cross. And then we read this in verse 13. The name by which he is called is the word of God. John first called Jesus by this name in his gospel. He said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And this Word was in the beginning with God. His name is called the Word of God. There's a reminder here that from the very beginning of history, we see the identity of this person who speaks and the Son just appears and bursts forth in unparalleled glory. He speaks, and the skies and the oceans split from each other. He speaks, and every living thing sprang to life. And then he, then he wraps himself in human flesh and comes to earth and continues to speak. And when he speaks, the lame run marathons. And when he speaks, the blind achieve 20-20 vision. And when he speaks, the demonic forces who know that one day he's going to come to end them, think that that day is already upon them. Lord Jesus, are you already here? We thought we had more time. All of that merely coming from words 
And here that same Jesus, we're told, will one day split the sky with accompanying shouts. All of human history will come to a close and every nation state on the planet will be struck down with one word. One word. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In, verse, in chapter 11, verse 15, we read this summary of this moment. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Here, here we see how this is going to happen. That last title description, incidentally, perfectly matches what faithful Romans would shout to their Caesar. He is king of kings. He's lord of lords. But like, like every other empire before them, they believe themselves to stand on the zenith of civilization. And every other empire that has come after them has existed under some kind of similar delusion, looking to a person, looking to a structure, lo looking to some sort of political construct and saying, this is our hope. But Jesus actually is that person. See how these things are contrasted with each other? Listen, there's always going to be things in this world that are not going to go your way or go my way. There are always going to be things in this world. There are going to be movements. There are going to be things. I, there are going to be things that are going to happen, and they're going to make the world a worse place rather than a better place. And in those moments, we are to be reminded there's really only one hope, the one who was in the beginning, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that means he is who he was when he revealed himself to these seven churches in this moment, and he is still who he is right now. And today, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. So lift your gaze. Look up. Await. Whatever's distracting you right now, whatever's troubling you, whatever's tormenting you, just recognize on the other side of this veil between this world and the next one, I mean, it is a tissue-thin veil. Stop thinking of the return of Christ in mere chronological terms. These are dimensional terms that are being described. It's how he can say the hour is close at hand. It's how he can say, I am coming soon, whether it's tomorrow or this afternoon or a thousand years from now. How is that? Because the proximity is close. It's tissue thin. It has been for 2,000 years. And just on the other side of it is your hope and mine. Lift your gaze to that. Because this man, with his holy army and his unparalleled authority, in an instant, is going to be accompanied by trumpet blast and shouts splitting the eastern sky and he will return. Let that give you hope. Let that give you hope. And let it make you ready. John says, don't just lift your gaze, but stand in victory. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly overhead, come, Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, we've already witnessed one supper. It's called the marriage supper. This vision stands in contrast to that, though. This is the supper of God, and it reflects a curse that we find elsewhere in the scriptures, Deuteronomy 28. 
26 says, and, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. What's being described here is the graphic end to every earthly power and worldly system that opposes this returning king. You ever been on a run or a walk in the woods or you've been out on a hunt? You look up in the sky and you see buzzards circling and it makes you just a little bit nervous. You ever been there? You're like, I don't smell anything. Is there something wrong with my sense of smell? Is there a dead animal? Or they know something about me that I don't know. What's happening there? Yeah, because when you, when you see them circling, what are they about? They're about to feast. And they're about to feast on dead flesh. We know this is part of the natural order. This vision is given to us to show us that there's some dead flesh about to be feasted upon. And these buzzards are beckoned by an angel. So he's anticipating something. Verse 19 tells us what it is. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So that those, those buzzards are circling because that final defeat is coming. Now, we've already seen in every window and every vision of heaven and every picture of the earth that, that Jesus overcomes every earthly power. This is an overarching message of John to these seven churches. There's no government. There's no famine. There's no war. There's no persecution. Nothing can stop his kingdom from victory. And as we come toward the end, we see this buildup of the opposition so that Jesus can ultimately, finally, and decisively end them. That's what happens to all who oppose. See, it, we struggle sometimes when we read a passage in Scripture like God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That was just a teaser. Because what is that? that the, the whole first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus are a story of a man who is born under the sovereign hand of God, raised up under the sovereign hand of God, specifically and purposefully so God can drown him and his army in the Red Sea and get glory for himself. And as horrible as all that is, it is a mere prefiguring of what we read here. They're all gathering. They're all coming. And those buzzards are circling because an angel has beckoned them, come, come come. A great defeat is coming. Every kingdom gathers to make war against him at once. Imagine every standing army on this planet, shoulder to shoulder, locked and loaded, every tank on the move, every plane in the air with missiles armed, every ICBM on this earth programmed and aimed. And then comes verse 20. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. What, remember who that was? People who said, I, I, Jesus is fine, but I want to save civilization. Jesus is fine, but I want political power. Jesus is fine, but I want cultural influence. That's the beast talking, right? And it's attractive. It's attractive. The world powers are attractive. But what happens? These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's what's going to become of every earthly power. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Okay? So the beast represents world powers that seek their own glory, and their destiny 
is the lake of fire. We're going to look more closely at that phrase in the coming weeks because one final warning of that book is if you follow those earthly powers and your name consequently is not written in the book of life, that's where you're going to. It's an eternal place. And so here what it means is these evil earthly powers are no more. They're gone forever. Furthermore, every lesser power that followed them are slain by the sword of his mouth. Again, this is a battle that never was and never will be. They all line up, locked and loaded. It seems like the whole world is going to explode. And then the Son of Man rides up on a horse and goes, no. And simply by speaking, he wins. Yeah. So, so many times we see in the Gospels, do we not, the power of the words of Jesus when he speaks and a little girl rises from the dead. When he speaks and the sea calms and the winds die down, just, just by speaking. And, and here we're reminded how powerful is the very voice of Jesus toward those who oppose him. Now, that's a different view of Jesus than we often try to give to him. Even in the church sometimes, we have this false dichotomy that, that, that in, well, we read, in the Old Testament, we read about this old grumpy man up on a throne somewhere, and God, he's just looking for somebody to zap. You know, God the Father's this grumpy, judgy, got to be afraid of him. He'll kill you as soon as look at you. He's just this, this, it's just horrible to even think about being in his presence. He's mean, he's nasty, and he's wrathful. I am so glad we live under the New Testament under Jesus, who would never hurt anybody. So let, let's, let's reel that nonsense in for a minute here, okay? Father and Son, along with the Spirit, are one God and therefore are of one mind, and God ain't schizophrenic, okay? So if that's, if that's the dichotomy you see, you haven't read deeply enough. Let me tell you, read what the Scriptures say about the Father, even in the Old Testament. We'll see. Father and Son are one with the Spirit in the Godhead. They are always forever in lockstep with each other. So when you read God in the Old Testament, you're going to see that just as often as he is wrathful, he is long-suffering, he is patient, he is loving, he is mothering, he is protecting, he is tender. And then you read the New Testament deeply enough, you know what you'll find out about Jesus? Jesus will kill you. That's what you'll find out about Jesus. So th there's this call to stand in victory with him not in defeat against him. There is a line being drawn in the sand with this picture. So, so let me ask you, what power, what thing of value, what are you serving that according to what we read in this book will one day be conquered? What do you value more? What do you talk about more? What are you more passionate about than the coming king that is a competing interest it's crazy, isn't it? How much hope we put in earthly things. How much hope we put in earthly power. And the powers of the earth, they know it. That's why my mailbox has been just as full of kindling as your has this election season. Have you seen these ads? I brought one in. I haven't even researched, right? Look, don't look at ads. Go to the web. Go to the people's website, look at the issues, examine, right? Don't, don't read what Newsmax or CNN says about them. Read their own words, okay? 
That, that's how you research if you want to be a good citizen. But I get these ads, and it's amazing. I came in laughing the other day, and I told my children, I said, hey, I think I'm going to vote for this guy because every member of our family is going to get a free unicorn. <laughs> like, if, have you seen this? And here's the other thing, like down in the fine print, we better get to the polls early because if we don't and the other guy wins, he's going to eat our children. <laughs> Who believes that crap? We do. Well, how do you know that? They wouldn't keep stuff in our mailboxes with it if we didn't believe it. If we didn't fall for it, like everybody over here is good and everybody over here is evil. And the only difference between the two of them is what part of the earth you happen to be standing on. I got a dear friend of mine, pastors in Southern California, and he and I talked just the other day. I said, are you getting mailboxes full of crap? He goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, all the lefties out here are warning me about the theocrats and the bigots and the people who hate gay people and the people who just, you know, especially Christians. Like, I'm under threat. He said, how's it, how's it looking for you? I said, well, it's, it's pretty much the same, except in the opposite direction. This one's all good. This one's all evil, right? This is this how we, why do we, why do we fall for that? Why do otherwise reasonable people look at that and actually believe it? Because a lust for power will make you irrational. That's why. Did I hit a, I'm sorry, did I hit a nerve when I said that? Lusting for power makes you irrational. And that's not what God wants for you. And you had better surrender that now while there is still time. Listen, power is not inherently evil, okay? For any of my brothers and sisters who think that, you think the answer is some sort of egalitarian utopia, let me tell you, it ain't. It ain't. That's called Twitter. Take a look. That ain't no utopia, Okay? Everybody gets the same and everybody's treated the same and all the outcomes are the same and everything's like, it's like, it, no. Power can be used for good things. The warning here is not against even having it. The warning is against infatuation with it. And it has come repeatedly throughout this letter, which should say something to us, especially at this climactic point of the text where we realize that one day, that, that tissue-thin veil, and I mean, we have no idea how thin that veil is. Jesus is going to break that sucker, and he's coming for all of it. And he will possess all of it. He'll possess all of it. Why, why else do you think Scripture tells us that his power is perfected in our weakness? Why do you think Paul says crazy stuff like, he must increase and I must decrease? Why do you think the most powerful expressions of Christian faith in the history of the world have never been in wealthy, developed countries? Right now, the most powerful expression, people are, the church is in decline. No, just in North America and Europe. You want, you want to know where it's exploding? Go to Latin America, go to the Middle East, go to Southeast Asia, go to Africa. That's where you'll see it. Why is that? Why do you think that in the 21st century, according to Alan Hirsch, our Australian missiologist, that, that the, the primary face of Christianity in the 21st century is no longer either a European or an American male, but an African female? You want a, you want a composite picture of Christianity? That's what it looks like. 
Where'd that come from? Why does it happen that way? And why do you think, here's the, the wickedly ironic part, why do you think in the face of all of that secular data, that sociological data, the secular world responds not with, wow, there must be something really going on. There must be some truth to that message. No, what do they do? What do they, well, well that, that's Africa. I mean, Marx was right, right? It's the opiate of the masses. They don't have money and they don't have the internet and they don't have vaccine access and they don't have this and they don't have that. Just, that's just Africa. Listen, our, our culture talks a lot about xenophobia and racism, don't we? And rightly so. But if you want to see the clearest expressions of that nonsense, just look at the progressive secular elites and listen to them every time they talk about your and my brothers and sisters in Africa. That's not what Scripture teaches. Let me tell you something about those people, those brothers and sisters. They know how to stand in victory looking forward to what's being described here. That's how they persevere. That's how they endure. And you and me, we better start learning from them. We better start learning from them. Because Christian or non-Christian, what is coming is the total purging of the world that we now know. And John just told us it's not that far away. You're thinking, well, he, he said that 2,000 years ago. Yeah, I know. How can you say soon? Again, this is not just chronological. It's dimensional. It's close. Heaven, where my mama is, where my wife's daddy is, where, where some of your loved ones are, it, it, it's not some way, place way up there. That's not where, no. It's simply another dimension of reality that is very close at hand. And the breaking of the barrier between those two could come at any moment. There's a story about some seminary students and they were playing pickup ball in the gym one night on campus and a janitor was there standing by to clean up after them, turn out the lights after they left and he would just kind of take a, take a seat on the hardwood floor on the sidelines, and they had all their backpacks laid out there. And so with the student's permission, he would take that hour, hour and a half that they were playing ball, and he would read their books. He would pull out something out of a backpack that seemed of interest to him, and he would read it. And one day, one of the Master of Divinity students walked over to him to get his backpack, and he said, what do you got there? And the janitor said, well, it looks like a commentary on Revelation. And there were some jokes back and forth about how difficult some of those passages are to understand, about the various ways that people who love Jesus and love his word have seen these scenes in Scripture. And he says, have you gotten anything out of it? And the janitor looked up at him with a smile and said, only, the only thing that really matters is this, Jesus is going to win. And folks, that's not even the best news. The good news is that through his death and resurrection, until he returns, he offers everybody in this room and everybody watching me right now to stand with him in that victory. And you don't have to train for it. You don't have to dress for it. You don't have to perform for it. Nobody gets cut. But you do have to give him everything. He's coming back and he's going to take it all. And I promise you, on the authority of God's word, it's going to be the best thing that ever happened to me and the best thing that ever happened to you. So why don't you just go ahead and give it to him now? All of it. 
wherever your other allegiances are, whatever else you're counting on, other places in civilization or society where you're trying to put your hope. Anybody looked at your 401k lately? <laughs> yeah, give it to him. Give it. That's what he wants. He wants everything. That, that's otherwise known as repentance. You stop moving in your direction. You turn around and you start moving toward Jesus. I'm going to give him everything. He becomes the focus, the center, and the circumference of my life. And you do that with the faith that he's exactly who he said he was and they, that he did exactly what Scripture tells us he did. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, not Caesar, not my bank account, not my political affiliation, not my family, not my job, not anything. Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Do that. Do that. And like I said on Easter Sunday, he'll take care of everything else. He'll take care of everything else. One day, and it could be today, he's coming. And I am urging you with everything I have, make sure you come to him first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have died, you have risen. And you are coming again. And so, Lord, it's on the basis of that confession that we ask for the very anticipation that you command of us. Lord, lift our gaze, lift our hearts, lift our disposition, our eyes above all the things that are coming at us on our phones and our television screens and the, the newspapers we read. And, and every time we look at our financial report or for some of us, uh, the disappointment that we have in family members or, or the place that we're at in our life right now that we just thought we'd be somewhere else. Father, lift our gaze to see an ultimate hope coming and the ultimate end to every deficiency and every sin and every evil in the world. And may we just go ahead and give you everything, Lord. May we come to you before you come. And if that's true of anybody here today, Lord, may they come to you and may today be the day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.